0: Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9 and take out your notes uh, uh, so you can follow along with where we're going this morning. We've been in a series on the life of Jesus through the gospel of Mark, and we have been uh, taking a close look at who Jesus is and and what it is he wants to teach us. You know, I'm guessing that most people here have had uh, the opportunity to go on a retreat with a high school group or with men or with women, and, and you came back, and maybe God spoke to you in kind of a, a special way, an extraordinary way. And maybe you've been to one of the retreat centers around here, Pine Valley or Hume Lake or Mount Hermon, and um, you looked at that time as a mountaintop experience. Well, we get that term, mountaintop experience, from the passage that we're looking at today. Um, and this is, this is where the term comes from. So the event we're looking at is the transfiguration, uh, starting in verse two. Uh, Mark wasn't present, but Peter was, and we know that we've mentioned this before that, that the gospel of Mark is really the story of Peter that he tells Mark and that Mark turns into the gospel of, of Mark. Peter refers to this event in 2 Peter. And listen as, as Peter talks about his experience firsthand at this event. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So on the top of your outline, you have this. Jesus' transfiguration takes place not far to the north of Caesarea Philippi, where we were at last week when Peter made his great confession. This was a revelation of Christ's glory and was witnessed by three of the apostles, In coming into the world as a human being, Jesus laid aside his divine glory. But now, in Christ, it reappears briefly. This is a small glimpse into the resurrection and the second coming, when Jesus will transform suffering into glory. So let's read our passage. We talked about last uh, verse 1 last week, so we'll pick it up at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were were talking with Jesus. Except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is God's word. Well, I don't know if, uh, if you snow ski or not, or if you've ever gone snow skiing around here, but did you know that you can snow ski in Israel? Uh, I think it 's the only place in the Middle East where you can snow ski on real snow at least. Um, actually, Mount Hermon in the north of Israel is nine thousand two hundred and thirty two feet, and there are two ski resorts that serve uh, that have nine lifts that serve twenty eight miles of ski slopes. so you can go snow skiing in Israel. What well, was on Mount Hermon somewhere where I believe it makes the most sense that this event took place. Uh, If you remember last week in the great confession at the end of Mark, right after that, um, they move from Caesarea Philippi to Mount Hermon in the north. And there was this great call to discipleship that Jesus gives us, that we're to pick up our cross and follow him. And these verses on the transfiguration are some of the most famous verses in the Bible. And the question for us is, what are we supposed to learn from this? What does Mark want to get across to us by sharing this story with us? And I think there's some, uh, some important things for us to learn. The first thing that stands out, and this is number one on your outline, is that Jesus is to be the object of our worship. Jesus is the object of our worship. Um, To better understand this passage, I think it's helpful to go back to Exodus chapter 33. And we see God coming down and speaking to Moses from out of the cloud. And the people are afraid, and so Moses goes up to the top of the mountain, and he asks God, he says, God, I want to see your glory. And God says in Exodus 33, when my glory passes by, I will put you in in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand till I have passed by, but my face cannot be seen. No one may look upon me and live. And what God is basically saying to to, to Moses is, I'll let you see my afterglow. I'm not even gonna let you see who I am in, in full because you wouldn't be able to live. But even just seeing the afterglow, we know that Moses' face shone for a number of days afterwards. And now, centuries later, here we are on the top of another mountain. And here's the glory again. Look at verse three. And his his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So we have the same situation as we had with Moses. We have a mountain, we have a cloud, Uh, We have a voice that comes out of the cloud. And we even have Moses there. So is this just another Mount Sinai happening again? No, it is not. Moses reflected the glory of God like the moon reflects the sun. Jesus produces the glory of God. Jesus, and in fact, you've got this on your outline. All Moses could do was to point to the glory of God. But Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. This is all the founder of what the founders of every other religion can do. All they can do is point to their idea of God. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. In fact, Hebrews puts it like this, and you've got this on your outline, the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by his mighty power of his by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the mag- of the majestic God in heaven. And so, what is the proper response to God's glory? It's worship. It's to worship him for the glory that we see. It's always worship. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. And Jesus is not just a teacher to follow. He is way more than that because he is true. Jesus is not just someone that you can kind of follow. If, if Jesus is who he says he is, then the only response is, as an act of intelligent worship to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. That's the only response possible, is to give ourselves to him, to consecrate ourselves to him. That was the great sin of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. They were lukewarm in their commitment to Jesus. There's no half-hearted commitment to him. And they, what is it, what it said about the church of Laodicea, <clears throat> what is said is that since they're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, God says. In other words, you cannot be lukewarm for Jesus. There's no such thing. There's no middle-of-the-road Christianity. When God said to Moses that he couldn't look on his face and live, it's like God saying to Moses, there's an infinite gap between me and you, and you cannot comprehend my glory on your own. Humanly, you can't do it. So then the question is, why Elijah and Moses? Why not Isaiah and Jeremiah? Why not somebody else? Well, Moses was the great lawgiver. Uh, Elijah was the great prophet. And so Moses and Elijah are to Hebrew history what George Washington and Abraham Lincoln are to American history. You've got this on your outline. Moses was God's human instrument in establishing the nation of Israel in the land promised to Abraham. Elijah, like Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, guided Israel during some violent times of self-affliction. But here's the key. Together, they are the ultimate summary, the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. And so, uh, really, these, th- these three men together appear, and, and we'll see what happens here, but they're talking with Jesus. It, it almost comes across like the way three friends would meet in a coffee shop and talk with each other. And so if the proper response of seeing the glory of God is always worship, then we need to make sure that that's what our lives are about, that our lives, that we live lives of worship to God. You know, you're here this morning. This is corporate worship. We need corporate worship together. But you know what? We also need private worship. We set aside time, I know that many of you, most of you, hopefully all of you are in the habit of setting aside time to spend with God every day, to be in his word and allow his word to speak to us, to to talk with God. But we need to make sure that worship is a part of what we do when we spend private time on a daily basis with God. Uh, We get fed here, we get a, a meal that we get to meet, a spiritual meal that we get to share together on Sunday mornings. But just like physically one meal a week wouldn't be enough to sustain us, that's why we need to spend time alone with God and make sure that worship is a part of what we do. The second lesson that we learn here is to listen to the voice of God the Father. Uh, Look at verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Uh, he did not know what to say because they were so frightened then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud this is my son whom I love listen to him so we're to listen to the voice of God the father and what does God the father say listen to the son in the first eight verses of chapter nine here there are only two speakers Peter and God the father Jesus doesn't say a word He doesn't need to. Like like many people would have done, uh, myself included, I'm sure, Peter decided to fill the moment with words when a respectful silence would have been the appropriate response. A much better choice. Maybe his nerves got the better of him, but he blurts out what is kind of an absurd suggestion. I I do believe that we can learn something from, from Peter's bad example that's significant, And what we learn is on your outline, we we listen to God the Father through his word because human perspectives are foolish. Someone even said, you know, you can take a principle of the world and you can reverse it and you basically most likely will have a principle of God. Uh, Peter's mind would finally catch up with his words, but not until after the cross and after the resurrection. Uh, We should maybe not be so critical of Peter uh, because we can never understand the person and the work of Christ apart from the cross and apart from the resurrection. You've got to remember this is before those two important, essential events happened. Uh, we leave out the cross and we don't have the atonement. We don't have the forgiveness of our sins. And we leave out the resurrection and we don't have any victory over sin. So in light of the disciples' misunderstandings in this passage, and the, the weight of what they understood before, namely Peter's great confession of who Jesus is that we looked at last week, there's, there's some good lessons here for us. And, and first of all, how do we hear the voice of God? We hear the voice of God through his word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for us. And what's it useful for? To teach us What's true? to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what's right. And then verse 17 says, God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So how's your time in the word? How's it going? Is it a regular time? <clears throat> I hope it is. If it's not, will you determine to make it a regular time? And is worship a regular part of that time, that devotional time that you spend with God? If it's not, I challenge you to make worshiping God a part of the private time that you have with him. And I love verse six. Peter did not know what to say. You know, there's an old American proverb that says, never pass up an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. There is a discipline of silence. And of course there are times that we should speak up and take a stand. But we live in a world that increasingly doesn't listen to anyone else. We just talk at each other. And a great learning tool can be silence, I think, on a couple of levels. The first thing that's on your outline is silence invites us to become intimately acquainted with God. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I'm God. The, the purpose of the, of the discipline of silence isn't to receive some secret message from God. That's not the purpose of it. We're, we're to be silent, and in that silence, God it allows God uh, to speak to us through his Holy Spirit to reveal insights and truth in Scripture so that we can zero in and know exactly how we can make that applicable in our own lives. Ecclesiastes five two says, don't make rash promises and don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. After all, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Richard Foster, who wrote The Celebration of of Discipline, writes this, One reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless. We are so accustomed to relying on words to manage and control others. If we are silent, who will take control? God will take control. But we will never let him take control until we trust him. And if you want to underline something in that quote, underline that last sentence, silence is intimately related to trust. Psalm 62.5 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence and quietly submits to him. If we want our character to reflect the character of Jesus and we want our decisions to accomplish his will, then we have to listen to God. And, and, that is the, the, and the best way to do that is in silence, to allow God to speak to us. And also, and this is also on your outline, silence allows us to cultivate genuine contentment. Silence allows us to cultivate genuine contentment. Dallas Willard, who taught philosophy at the University of Southern California and wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines, says this, Far from being a mere absence, silence allows the reality of God to stand in the midst of your life. God does not ordinarily compete for our attention. In silence, we come to attend. Uh, What Dallas Willard is saying is this, that we all need to push the button in our lives uh, th- th- and, and allow contentment in God to replace the need that we have for more and more stuff. We, we don't always need to buy something better. We don't always need to buy something bigger. Those are things that, that make it seem like they're competing with God in our lives because we live in America. We live in the, in the West. There's so many things that are competing for our attention. So many things are competing for our money. So many things that are competing for our mind and a place in our hearts. And silence allows us to listen to God more clearly and to grow in our trust of him and and put less emphasis on the things around us. When we go through a difficult situation, that's a, a perfect opportunity to be quiet and to ask God what he wants to teach us through his word about the situation that we're going through. And, and, and instead of, 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 you know, maybe how to resist the temptation that we're going through so that we don't try to justify ourselves or we don't try to explain away the situation that we're going through. We say, God, what do you want to teach me? What, what, what could happen here that would bring the most glory to you out of whatever it is I'm going through in my life? And so we listen to God because he wants to shape us to be more like his son, Jesus. The third thing that we learn from this passage, number three on your outline, is what we need most is a divine perspective. Verses seven and eight. Verse seven begins, then a cloud appeared and covered them. We don't need man-made tents. We need God's presence. And he now speaks words that thunder with authority and are so full of meaning and the meaning in verse 7 a voice came from the cloud this is my son listen to him whom i love listen to him if the cloud would have enveloped them in old testament times they would have all died because it was god but so why don't they die when the cloud comes and surrounds them you know what it is here it's worship It's worship. They're surrounded by reality. Reality isn't what we see with our eyes here. Reality is what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw the brilliance of God. They they heard the glory of God speaking of the Father's love for the Son. What is that? It's the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. That's the gospel. And so we're to listen to Jesus only. Look at verse eight. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So this is Mark's way of saying, Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. And because Jesus is God the Son, he's the bridge that gets us to God the Father. He is God the Son. He is who Moses and Elijah were pointing to they were pointing to Jesus. God the Father again affirms Jesus as the Son, and he confirms Jesus' words as his own. And the implication is, you are in the presence of God, and so stay silent and listen to Jesus. One commentator said it like this, and I think this was brilliant. He said, Jesus is the temple and the tabernacle to end all temples and tabernacles because he is the sacrifice and the priest to end all sacrifices and all priests. What we need to see is that Jesus is able to give us and do for us what Elijah and Moses can never do for us. The old covenant is gone. The new covenant has arrived, and the new covenant is all about Jesus. It's only through him that we can come to God. We're to have eyes for him only. It's what the writer to the Hebrews wrote. You've got it on your outline, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. James invites us to pray for divine perspective. In James 1.5, if you need wisdom, ask a generous God and he will give it to you. That's what wisdom is, right? Seeing life from God's point of view. And we need that every day about every event in our lives. We need to see it from God's perspective. And then we also learn, number four, that it's all about the resurrection, you notice what Jesus says in verse nine. As they're coming off the mountain, he says, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. So why does Jesus not to tell, tell them not to tell anyone until after the resurrection? <laughs> Who would believe him? Who would believe that they were with Moses and Elijah up on the mountain? Yeah, right. But they wanted to, Jesus wanted them to experience this because it would all make sense after the resurrection. And, and in that sense, the transfiguration is a foretaste of heaven. It's a foretaste of the resurrection. It's a foretaste of the second coming. And it's exactly what these three men, Peter, James, and John, needed to lead. Needed to lead the others. The Christian faith stands or falls with the resurrection. <clears throat> Just recently I met with someone and they were asking about different questions in the Bible and is this true? Is that true? Can't really believe this is true. And I said, "Hey, let's start with the resurrection." Because everything stands or falls with the resurrection of Christ. If you disprove that, you disprove Christianity. If you know someone who is struggling with some of the truth of Scripture or has questions about different events in the Bible, <clears throat> challenge them to start with the resurrection. In fact, there are some great books that I think every Christian ought to read and that we can pass on to people who do have questions. You've got a list of them on the outline. Uh, And I hope that you'll read these. I hope that you'll... I gave more than a carpenter to this man. He said he wasn't really a reader. Uh, So that's the shortest of all the books that are on there. But it definitely will challenge him about the truth of the resurrection. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. So it begins with the resurrection. It ends with the resurrection. That's got to always be our focus. We, we have a historical faith that, that can be proved. And we, we, the proof is in the, the truth of the resurrection. The fifth thing that we learn from this passage is that Jesus doesn't promise to take us out of suffering, but to see us through it. You know, there's an interesting conversation with Elijah uh, about Elijah in verses 11 to 13. What's this about? Well, you remember back in chapter 8, Peter's great confession of who Jesus is, it didn't go well for Peter right after that, right? Because he said, I'm not going to let you go and suffer. Well, in verses 9 and 10, Jesus again refers to his death in in chapter 9. He refers to his resurrection but he's suggesting that that means that he's gonna be dead. In fact, it's translated in the New International Version as being risen from the dead. That's what they're talking about, what that meant. Uh, And now the disciples push back a little bit, and I believe they're getting to the same thing that Peter suggested back in chapter nine, that they don't want Jesus to suffer, but they've learned from Peter that they can't do it in the same way Peter did it. and so. They look at verse 11. They asked him, "Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first?" So the disciples are referring back to Malachi where it talks about Elijah returning before the great day of the Lord, when God will set everything right. And Malachi 4 talks about the prophet Elijah coming before the great day of the Lord arrives. So the great day of the Lord is when God appears and will make everything right. So the disciples are saying, hey, we we just saw Elijah up on the mountain. And so Elijah's here. That means the day of the Lord is here. And so Jesus, you can just go to Jerusalem and take control and be our king. And Jesus responds with the words starting in verse 12. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished just as it is written about him. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying that the new Elijah is John the Baptist. Remember what they said about Jesus when when Jesus asked them, the disciples, who do people say that I am? They said, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist. They saw these two as connected. And so Jesus is saying, hey, John the Baptist has come and he has suffered and he's died. And that means I'm going to die. I think, I, I, I think they're bringing up what Peter did uh, about Jesus dying. And Jesus basically says this to him. Anytime suffering comes up, anytime I talk about suffering, you guys freak out. You need to see that suffering is part of my program for you and all my children, and I'm going to the cross, but I will be raised from the dead. And if you take up your cross and follow me, you will also be raised from the dead. And this is where it it ties in with what we looked at last week, where Jesus gives this challenge to his disciples, to all of us. If anyone wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus said that in this world, you and I and and all Christians will have tribulation. We will have difficulties. We will have trials, no matter who you are. The only question is how do we respond to the suffering that we're going to go through? Will the suffering make you wiser? Will it make you deeper? Will it make you stronger? Will it make you kinder? Or will it make you bitter? Will it make you hard? Will it make you joyless? Will it drive you closer to God or will it drive you away from God? The suffering that you go through, how will you respond? Will it make you more compassionate toward other people or more cynical towards others? Jesus is saying, I am going through suffering and I will be resurrected. And if you follow me, you will go through suffering, but you will also share eternity with me. And so what's the key question here? You've got it on your outline. What will keep the tribulations and the trials and the sufferings you and I go through from turning us hard? What will make these things you go through and I go through such that like Jesus, they turn us into something great to be like Jesus? John writes this in 1 John 3. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears, but we know that we will be like him. We will be like Jesus because we will see him in all of his glory as he really is. And so what's the answer? The answer is worship. That should be be the, the, the story of our lives is that we live to worship God that whether we eat or whether we drink, whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. And I can think of so many examples sitting right around you right now. Uh, And they have gone through really difficult times. And praise is on their lips when I talk to them. Their hearts are full of God's word and that's what strengthens them. That's what flows out of their mouths. That's what sustains them through the difficult times and keeps them going. That's what, they they just live thankful lives. Is that you? No matter what you're going through, is that what comes out? Because that's what God wants, is for us to live lives of worship before him. No matter what these disciples, Peter, James, and John, would encounter between now and the resurrection, they had the knowledge of the transfiguration in their hearts to encourage them, for them to encourage others. When they saw Jesus' glory, when they remembered that that seeing that glory, what did it cause them to do to worship God? Enveloped by that cloud. I'm I'm thinking they'd often remind themselves and they'd often remind the other disciples, we're not sure what's happening right now. We're not sure what we're going through, but we know this, it will be all right. It will be good. That's what God will do. And so this is a foretaste of the resurrection. It's a foretaste of, of the second coming. It's the foretaste of heaven. And we will see that whatever we're going through is the same thing. We'll see the glory of God. We will worship him. And it was Peter and James and John who were just on the mountain. They saw the dazzling light. They saw Jesus' glory. They saw reality. And yes, there will be difficult times they would go through. And the dazzle was gone. There was no more dazzle. That's gone. But they hold in their hearts what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration so that no matter what happens, they can say, I know that God has everything under control. Do you know that? With whatever is going on in your life? that God has everything under control. Turn your lives into lives for the glory of God. Live for his worship. It's in our nature to hold on to everything so tightly. We hold on to our our health. We hold on to our jobs, our money. We hold on to our families, our children, the people we love the most. We hold them tightly. And the more we worship God, the more we're going to be able to say, okay, God, I come to you with open hands. I'm not coming in anger. I'm not coming holding on to these things. I come releasing them and trusting you with them. That's hard to do with the things we love the most. But we offer them up to God. And what will happen is we will become wiser. We will become deeper. We will become like Jesus. Think about it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this great, great promise that through Jesus we can be enveloped with the beauty and the power and the love of heaven. And it's just a foretaste for us of what's to come. Keep us, Lord, from just going through the motions. We want to hear in our heart of hearts that we are your children and that you love us. And we want to live for the glory of God and do all we do for his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole, put you together spirit, soul, and body and keep you fit for the coming of our master Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.